Famous last words uh, are always intriguing, I think. Uh, The final words which people say just before they die, they can often be quite telling, quite telling about the person's life. Uh, Ned Kelly, for example. Ned Kelly's famous last words as the hangman adjusted the hood over his face, Ned Kelly's last words were, I suppose it had to come to this, such is life. That's a statement that pretty well epitomises the man, the sort of come what may approach. Queen Elizabeth I, Queen Elizabeth I on her deathbed said, all my possessions just for a moment of time. And that pretty much epitomises her, her tenacious clinging to life and, and power. Leonardo da Vinci, his last words, after all the masterpieces that the guy had painted and sculpted, his last words were actually, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Now there is perfectionism. Of course, last words aren't always particularly deep or insightful. Uh, Sometimes they're just sad. Sometimes they just capture the tragedy of what's going on. Evidently, Lady Diana's, evidently Lady Diana's last words were quite simply, my God, what's happened? In Mark's Gospel, Jesus' last words are, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At one level, they actually sound a bit like Diana's words, don't they? They start out the same, my God. Although in Jesus' case, it's not an expression of shock, he actually is calling out to God. But just like Lady Diana's, his last words reflect sort of bewilderment, uh, desperation, anguish. My God, why have you forsaken me? Now, the big difference between Jesus and Lady Diana's words, of course, though, the big difference is that although Jesus' last words are called out in anguish, they are not only called out in anguish. They are, at the same time, words that have far-reaching profoundness because the words that Jesus calls out at the cross take us to the heart of what is happening as he's hanging on the cross, which is precisely why Mark records them. See, Mark is a very skillful writer. I hope you've noticed that in this short series in Mark's Gospel. Mark's Gospel, it's God's word to us, so it has all the authority of that, but it's also a very skillful piece of literature. Mark writes things, he records things in a very deliberate way so as to help us understand the importance of the events that he's recording. And here at the cross, amongst all the things that Jesus said at the cross because the other Gospels record that he said other things, and yet here in Mark, the last words which Mark wants to leave ringing in our ears from Jesus, the last words are, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he deliberately chooses those words because they take us behind the scenes to see the real drama of what is happening at the cross. For starters... They point, they, they point us to the real pain of the cross. For consider what Jesus has actually been through in the last 24 hours. Think about it. Consider all the other things that, that really must have been pressing in on his mind. It began with every single one of Jesus' friends deserting him the night before. Now, there was lots of big talk especially people like Peter, that they were going to stick with him. Don't be afraid, Jesus, we'll be with you. Even if you die, we're going to, we're going to, we won't leave you. And yet as Jesus wept in the garden, as his soul was overwhelmed with fear and sorrow, his friends 
went to sleep. And when they finally wake up, it was to run away. And Jesus was left alone in the dark without a friend, surrounded by enemies. And if that wasn't enough, he then had to go through the mockery of a trial, listening to complete strangers making up lies about him. He had to listen to Pilate question him like a criminal. He had to listen to soldiers mocking him, teasing him, humiliating him. He had to listen to crowds calling out for him to be killed. And for what? What had he ever done? Heal people? Care? Then came the flogging. Now, Roman floggings were particularly brutal. The whip they used often had pieces of metal and bone embedded in them so that they would shred the skin more easily. If you've seen Mel Gibson's movie The Passion, that's pretty true. If nothing else, Mel Gibson does his research. One historian of the time records that in a common flogging, quote, veins were laid bare and the muscles, sinews and bowels of the victim were frequently open to exposure. After the beating, Jesus is nailed through the wrists onto a wooden wooden cross and hoisted into the air. Crucifixion was a hideous thing. You're suspended by your two arms and the blood sinks to the bottom half of your body. Within minutes, your blood pressure is sinks to 50% of what it should be and so your heart rate doubles to compensate for it. You grow dizzy, cramps fill your body and you start fading in and out of consciousness. The only way to stop that is to push up against the nail that is through your feet. But then you've got that excruciating pain of pushing a bare wound hard against that metal pin. And the whole process is amplified by the trauma of thirst and hunger and the anguish of having lacerated wounds across your back which are now being stretched and exposed to the elements and stinging with sweat. And in the middle of all of that, Can you believe it? In the middle of all of that, the thing that fills his mind, it's not the physical pain. It's the spiritual pain of being abandoned by God. And you can forget the sterile picture that many people have in your mind here. Forget the images of a calm, restful Jesus serenely hanging on the cross. He is terrified. God has abandoned him. And he is in hell. Now lots of people are blasé about hell. We treat it pretty lightly, as if it won't be too bad. You know, people joke, rather be in hell because that's where all the fun people will be. Why be in heaven with all the boring Christians? People only say those sorts of stupid things because they've never been to hell. They don't have a clue what it's like. Jesus does. And you see, the pain of having a lacerated back with your muscles shredded and your bowels exposed, the pain of having nails driven through your wrists, the humiliation of people spitting on you and mocking you for things you've never ever done, the trauma of gasping for life as your whole body is racked with cramps, that is nothing compared to the terror of being abandoned by God in hell. And that's where Jesus was as he hung on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's actually a quote from Psalm 22. 
Psalm 22 is all about the anguish of being deserted by God, of knowing that God is not going to help you even when you know that he could. And on the cross, in his terror, Jesus screams out the only verse of scripture that accurately describes what he's going through. And so the cry is in the form of a question, not because Jesus doesn't know the answer, Of course he knows the answer. He's been talking about it for ages in Mark's Gospel. It's in the form of of a question because the Old Testament text that he's quoting is a question. It's a question worth pursuing. Why is God the Father forsaking the Son? Why is Jesus going through this? Well, Mark tells us by embedding in the text some very important clues. The first clue being that these are quite literally the real words which Jesus called out from the cross. It's one of the few times when his actual words are recorded. See, Jesus didn't speak English. I know he does in all the movies, but in real history he didn't. He actually spoke Aramaic most of the time. To complicate matters, though, the original manuscripts of our New Testament, they weren't written in They were written in Greek. And here in Mark 15, Mark goes out of his way to record the actual words which Jesus called out. That's unusual. That's a clue. There are two other times in Mark's Gospel where you also read the actual words that Jesus said. Both times it's when an important miracle is happening. Back in chapter 5, Jesus' original words are recorded when he brought a 12-year-old girl back from the dead. An event a miracle where death itself was conquered. Then in chapter 7, there's a second miracle where his original words are used when he heals a deaf and dumb Gentile. And in the context of Mark's Gospels, that's a very profound miracle as well because it's a miracle that shows that Jesus is now bringing blessings to the Gentiles as well as to Jews, that in Christ so abundant is Jesus' goodness that it overflows to everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. So up until this point, you've had two profound miracles, one where death was conquered, the second where blessing goes even to Gentiles. And in both those miracles, Jesus' actual words were recorded. And here at the cross, the actual words are again recorded. Because Mark is masterfully wanting us to see that yet again a profound miracle is happening. And it is the genius of God that this miracle is actually a combination of the other two. Because at the cross, death is again being defeated. And at the cross, God's blessing is again being poured out to everyone, even Gentiles. Firstly, death again is being defeated in the sense that death as a penalty for sin is being taken away at the cross. On the cross, the great message of the gospel is that Jesus accepted our punishment in our place so that we could go free. Uh, During one of the wars that has often existed between France and Britain throughout history, Napoleon Bonaparte went through uh, a time when he wanted to increase the size of his army so he brought in a lottery system. Basically, if your name was pulled out of the hat, you you were conscripted and had to join up and go off to battle. Well, When the army came to take one particular fellow whose name had been pulled out of the hat, he refused to go. And he said it was because he'd already been shot and had been killed two years ago. 
Now, the officials thought that the guy was just a loony trying to get out of going to the battle, but he explained that if you checked up the, the military records, it would back him up. The reason for this being that his name had already been drawn out once before, but a close friend had said to him, hey, you've got a family. I don't, I'm single. No one's dependent on, him, on me. I'll take your name and address and go in your place. And the friend did and was killed in action. Well, they reckon the story uh, went all the way to the top. Napoleon himself checked out the details, found it was true, and let the man stay home with his family because he had already died of sorts in the person of another. Now, that's what Jesus did for us. He took our name. He died for us so that we could go free. On the cross is when he's doing it. He took the punishment so that, that we should have received as he went to hell in our place. And it ties in with these last words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He has been forsaken because he's going there in our place. God abandoned his son on the cross because Jesus became our sin on the cross. And having done that, death as punishment is now removed for those who follow Jesus. And just like Mark recorded Jesus' words when he brought back that little girl from the dead, he again records Jesus' actual words here on the cross because once again someone is being rescued from death. We're being rescued from death. But remember that other miracle where Jesus' actual words are recorded? It's the one where, where blessings get extended even to the Gentiles and again that is happening at the cross. And so you don't miss the point, Mark is throw, throws in a couple of additional clues. Look at verse 37. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the son of God. At the point of Jesus' death, the Jewish temple is effectively pushed aside by God. It's reflected in the fact that the curtain is torn from top to bottom. Notice that it's from top to bottom. This is a tear that is originating from God himself. For you see, the temple is now no longer needed. God's blessing is now being poured out to anyone and everyone. You don't have to be an Israelite anymore to be one of God's people. And therefore, of all the people standing around the cross, Mark records the testimony of a Gentile soldier, a Roman centurion. Surely this man was a son of God. Because you see, it doesn't matter now whether you're Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're Chinese or Malay or Australian or a Roman centurion. It doesn't matter whether you're educated or uneducated. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. It doesn't matter if you're a corporate executive or unemployed. It doesn't matter if you're married or single. It doesn't matter whether you've got a criminal record or you're a model citizen. Whoever you are, you can be rescued from hell and reconciled to God because by following Jesus, he is punished in our place. And it is an enormous event that is happening here at the cross. This is the Son of God taking a punishment so that anyone from any background can now have the opportunity to be put right with God the Father. This is the most important event in the history of this planet. And Mark very cleverly reinforces that in the way that he finishes his gospel. 
because Mark now moves from a description of what Jesus does say in chapter 15 to a description of what people don't say in the very next chapter. Look with me at chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now that's a fascinating ending. Just when things are getting interesting, aren't they? The tomb is empty. Just when there seems to be a lot more that could be said and loose ends are there to be tied up, Mark just seems to cut things off short with that ending. And you sort of read it and you're left thinking, well, what next? What what happens now? Is there a page missing here? What's going on? Now, some of you might be a bit confused because uh, your Bible might keep going to verse 20 and I stopped reading at verse 8. Uh, but you might have verses 9 to 20 uh, with just full of interesting stuff about Jesus appearing and people doing miracles. Uh, I don't know, maybe those verses are in brackets, perhaps down the bottom of the page in your Bible somewhere. Verses 9 to 20 are almost certainly not part of the original text. Uh, the most reliable parts, manuscripts of Mark's Gospel just do not have those verses in you. Uh, but it's not hard to imagine how they got in there. You know, 500 AD, some poor scribes uh, writing out Mark's Gospel and he can't stand the frustration of ending the book like that. He knows how it ends. He's read the other Gospels. He's read Acts. And so just to tidy things up, he adds in a few more details. Mark doesn't. He is very deliberate in cutting it off abruptly there because he wants the resurrection to impact us and affect us. For think about it. The most important sequence of events in history has just happened. The Son of God has been sacrificed for our sins and now the tomb that held his body is empty for he has risen. After three days a cold, white corpse has started to breathe again. And we got to see that we're dealing with with a remarkable moment here. And yet the final words that Mark says about it are, they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. They said nothing to anyone? See, Mark finishes like that because he wants us to sense the tragedy of that. The angel at the tomb had expressly told the women to go and tell people and they said nothing to anyone. This is the most significant moment in the history of the world. Jesus has shown himself to be far more than just talk. 
The guy really is the Christ. He really is the ruler of the world. He really has made it possible for us to be forgiven by God. And they said nothing to anyone. And you see, the very abruptness of that ending jars with us and it heightens the sadness of it. Why would they not tell others? Which is exactly Mark's point. For the sadness of it has the effect of turning the spotlight around onto us. Why would you not tell others about it? Who are you telling about it? Are we going to be like the women and just be too afraid to respond the right way? Are we going to be obedient to Jesus? Are we going to tell people that he's risen? At work this week, over the lunch table, the office with the family, dinner parties, when we get together with our sporting team, are we going to talk about Jesus? Or are we going to say nothing to anyone? Because we're afraid. Friends, Mark's Gospel, a few weeks back, opened with the simple words that this was the beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ. And we noted that that Gospel wasn't a particular religious word. It just means important news, good news. And now you see Mark closes by wanting us to feel the importance of that news and the goodness of that news. He wants us to feel that sometimes news is so important that it is just plain wrong to not tell people about it. And sometimes news is just so good that you just can't help telling people about it. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Who are we telling the good news of Jesus to? I'll pray. Father, thank you so much for Mark's gospel. Thank you for its clarity and its genius. Thank you for the way it shows us the grandeur of Jesus Christ and the wonder of what he achieved on the cross. Father, thank you for all that your precious son went to for our sake. And Father, we pray that we would be good at telling the good and important news that he is risen, that he is your son, that he is our saviour. Amen.